Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode five of Your Healing Nature, a weekly podcast about how Black, Indigenous, people of color are reclaiming the outdoors to heal individual and or collective trauma. I'm your host, Brenda Besa, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Shelma John. Shelma is a filmmaker, rock climber, outdoor advocate, and founder of Flash Foxy and the Flash Foxy Climbing Festival. In this episode, Shelma shares her root stories, navigating her Korean American identity, the barriers that exist for women and the genderqueer community in rock climbing, Flash Foxy's ever-evolving mission and vision, and so much more. Enjoy. Today, I am so delighted to be in conversation with Shelma Jun. Born in Seoul, South Korea, Shelma's family immigrated to the United States when she was four, and she grew up rather venturesome in California, skinning knees on skateboards and raging on her snowboards through terrain parks. Though she was captain of her high school's first women's water polo team, it is ultimately through climbing that she found her girl crew. When she started climbing after a shoulder surgery sidelined her from other sports, she didn't expect to find the strong, passionate group of women that would inspire her to start Flash Foxy, a climbing community that brings together Shelma's advocacy work through events, writing, and filmmaking. These endeavors intertwine her desires to create opportunities for historically excluded folks to support one another and work in partnership with other grassroots initiatives to amplify the voices of underrepresented communities and honor indigenous connections to the places we recreate in through land acknowledgement and more. She directed her first film in 2019, Do Better Together, which was an official selection of Mountain Film in 2020. A current board member of the Axis Fund, in 2017, Shelma was named one of 40 women who've made the biggest impact in the outdoor world by Outside Magazine. A leader in our community, she has written, spoken, and presented on the importance of creating a climbing community that reflects and welcomes everyone who identifies as a climber. Shelma currently splits her time between Brooklyn, New York, and the Eastern Sierras in California, and can often be found plugging widgets into horizontal cracks at the gunks or getting scared on granite highballs in Bishop. Welcome to the podcast, Shelma. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am so, so excited that you are. In our initial email, when I reached out to you, I shared with you that I came to your body of work through the Outdoor Journal Tour uh, BIPOC Women's Camp Out and Healing Retreat. And on the first night, we watched about, I think, six or seven documentary shorts that featured women in the outdoors. And one of them was Within Reach, which featured you and, you know, the founding of Flash Foxy. And then one right after that was Do Better Together, which, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was highlighting Aisha McGowan's story. And when I was looking at the rolling credits and it said, Shelma John, director, Shelma John, producer, Shelma John, camera. I thought, note to self, reach out to Shelma. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah. Um, that's so funny that they played uh, right in concert together. Yeah. And, you know, I just think you're such a great storyteller. And I think that you do it so naturally through the lens of intersectional feminism, which makes it all the more powerful. Just a quick note before we hear from Shelma. Throughout this episode, you will hear the term intersectional feminism, which was coined in 1989 by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. In case you missed the refresher in last week's episode, intersectional feminism is a prism that helps us to think about the fact that discrimination can happen on the basis of several different factors simultaneously. Crenshaw reminds us that, quote, we tend to talk about race inequality as separate from inequality based on gender, class, sexuality, or immigrant status, to name a few. What's often missing is how some people are subject to all of these, end quote. Shelma self-identifies as an intersectional feminist, and it is at the root of everything she does. In the show notes, you'll find resources to learn more about this prism for understanding discrimination.
As Shelma begins to unearth her root stories, she paints a picture of the friction that exists in the word belonging, especially as a Korean immigrant to the United States. Shelma's parents clearly delineated how she should experience indoor and outdoor spaces. Within the privacy of her home and or within the Korean community, Shelma was expected to fully step into her Korean cultural identity. Yet, in outdoor spaces, her parents asked her to step into the most acculturated version of herself as she engaged in American outdoor activities. As she began to unpack what it meant to authentically belong in a space, she started to question whether she was conforming and or leaving parts of herself behind. And so she sets the foundation for these root stories. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm definitely someone who has a hard time with things like, what is your favorite this? Or what was like the most important moment of your life? I think um, I don't I wouldn't say that I have necessarily incredible specific moments that I can target as like moments where it was like a huge change in the trajectory of my life, let's say. Um, I would say in the work that I'm doing, uh, the watershed root story, one of the watershed root story moments, which I think is really critical, didn't actually even happen before I started working in the outdoor industry or working in community advocacy in the outdoor space. I think it's something that kind of um, came to light to me uh, during my own journey of exploring what it means to be outdoors and what it means to feel welcome to the outdoors. And, um, you know, I think this root story comes from it being a little bit threefold. I think one being, you know, that I grew up going to the outdoors with my family Two, that I found myself immersed in a lot of outdoor communities um, growing up, but I very made very clearly made it distinctively different from the experiences I had with my family growing up in like a Korean household. And so, you know, I found myself really immersed into the snowboarding, surfing, skateboarding communities, and then climbing. Um, and while a lot of people who do have intersectional identities felt like they didn't fit in. I, you know, I think what was different for me is I did at, in most moments, other than maybe being like the only, noticing that I was the only woman or the only person of color in that space, felt really comfortable in that space, you know? And and I would say, found myself thriving in that space. And sorry, this is like a really big lead up to the, to the moment. But I think uh, the third aspect of it, which I think is this root story watershed moment, is the realization that um, that I was conforming myself to the cultures that existed in these spaces. Um, and so the idea of belonging, as we think about belonging, um, I began to question my own sense of belonging uh, and my own sense of experience in these spaces and started to think about, well, Am I leaving parts of myself behind when I come into these spaces and conforming to the culture that exists here? Because that's kind of what I've been told to do most of my life since I immigrated here to the United States from South Korea. It's always been like assimilate, assimilate, like get in, blend in with everybody. You know, we're really Korean here at home, at church, with our family, with our relatives. But like when you're in these outdoors, in these like mainstream public spaces, you need to be as American as you can be. And as being as American as I can be was drilled into me that it was what was the mainstream popular culture, which was like traditionally, you know, cis, hetero, white culture, um, especially in the outdoor spaces. So I think for me, what it's this roots, this watershed moment was this realization of like, well, what could it look different? Could it look different for me to be in the outdoors? And are there parts of me that I'm feeling like I could never bring? Or that I've always like shelved or like kept at home. And if I consciously start to try to let go of the ways that I try to conform or try to fit in or try to um, match whatever is happening in that space, will my experience be different? And, um, you know, and I think like that was a really pivotal moment for me. And this is definitely something I'm still working through and trying to um, figure out what that means. As Shelma let go of conforming, she started to explore questions of belonging in different ways. In Duality, an Arcturax documentary short, Shelma explored how her Korean roots intersect with her identity as a climber. 
Korea has a thriving outdoor community, especially when it comes to camping and hiking, as 70% of Korea's mountainous terrain with 64% of the land being forest. Naturally, this means that Korean people have been walking mountains for centuries. As Shilma approached her three-week trip to Korea, she was, in her words, quote, singularly focused on how this trip to my ancestral homelands might deepen my relationship to climbing, end quote. And so I ask her how her family history shaped the way she experienced the outdoors and whether this trip to Korea helped her to start healing, to find more wholeness and a sense of belonging. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely, I wouldn't say it started it. I would say that it's been definitely a pivotal part of the journey. You know, I think what kind of probably piqued my, like really started getting me thinking about it is, um, well, to answer first your question, like, yes, my, the way that my family, you know, spent the time, spent time outdoors definitely significantly impacted me and being comfortable outdoors. I think because, um, it gave me the tools I needed to be comfortable outdoors. I think like, that's one big thing is if you haven't grown up being in these spaces, um, a lot of times outdoor spaces assume that you have, and that you you're comfortable camping or hiking or backpacking and um, that you're comfortable doing it in the way that they did it, right? And so I think at least having the base of being outdoors, even if it was done in a little bit of a different way, because the culture of camping is a little bit different in Korea, um, having that base definitely gave me the tools I needed in order to um, start to fit into these places that I that I found interesting, that I wanted to be a part of. Um, but I would say that the Korea trip was incredibly pivotal in my growing. I think what actually probably was the beginning of me really thinking about the idea of belonging and culture and outdoor culture as we know it, not actually being an accurate reflection of who's in those spaces necessarily, was through the Women's Climbing Festival. Um, you know, we started the Women's Climbing Festival in 2016. And at that time, you know, it feels wild now in 2021. But at that time, we were still fighting the idea that women are having different experiences in the outdoors, much less anybody else with an uh, affinity identity. So there was even pushback that sexism existed, which, you know, I feel like it's been much more accepted now mainstream that sexism exists, that there are these barriers for women, that they're socially constructed. And, you know, I was in, in 2016, 2015, we were still pushing against that idea. A lot of people were pushing back on the fact that women are having different experiences, that women are maybe looking for ways to come together and so I was asked the question, like, why do you need this space? It's divisive. You're creating more sexism. You know, the same arguments that are used for a lot of affinity spaces. And kind of as a response to that, I wrote an article for Climbing Magazine in 2016 for their women's issue. I think it's called Accept and Adapt. And I think you can find it online. But basically what I talked about in that article was that, you know, the idea that affinity spaces are a place for experimentation to happen. It is a space where we can experiment what do interactions between climbers look like, between climbing partners, what can be seen as success, what can be seen as failure, what can be seen as encouraging or discouraging. Maybe we can find and explore new ways of these ideas and concepts to be um, discovered and to be, uh, to manifest themselves when we take the pressure out of kind of a primarily patriarchal, like uh, male focused space, right? And, and, and thinking about that is really what kind of then propelled my thoughts around how do you, how do I, how do I find myself in these spaces? And do I feel like I'm even truly bringing my whole self? Um, and, if I make a conscious effort to be open to having these experiences in a different way, what am I going to find? And I would say that like these questions that came up around the genesis of the women's climbing festival is really where like these kinds of questions around belonging started to form. Before delving into the founding of Flash Foxy and the Women's Climbing Festival, we backtrack. And I ask Shelma how her root stories have informed the evolution of her career. For those of you who don't know, Shelma started her professional career as a certified public accountant and then transitioned into urban planning and eventually into community organizing. So she takes us on this journey. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it's really funny because sometimes when I get interviewed or I'm on podcasts, people will be like, you know, or, you know, people will reach out to me and say, you know, I, I love what you, you know, I love what you've been doing. I really want to start something here. Like, can you tell me about your journey and how like I could do that same thing? And my, my answer has always been kind of like, find what your strengths are and what tools and skills that you've gained through your life, through all the different aspects of your life, because that's kind of what, that's kind of how it worked for me. And my specific story is not going to be transferable to anybody else because it's unique to me of, you know, having been a certified public accountant, going to urban planning school, working with community organizers in New York city. And, um, I feel incredibly lucky that this is the path that I've taken to be here. And because I couldn't do the work that I do, the experiences that I have, the financial stuff is more kind of like administrative, like having the background and ability to budget and understand how finances work has been incredibly helpful. But really, you know, the work of doing community, like working with community-based organizers, community organizing groups in New York City that work with public housing, with uh, labor unions, all of that, um, working in neighborhoods that have been like historically undervalued and um, under given under-resourced you know, it really gave me the tools to be able to um, come into the space as, you know, in Flash Foxy, as well as a filmmaker, um, as someone who um, doesn't know everything, can't like, you know, doesn't, not even remotely close to knowing everything, especially about another person's story or about another person's experience. And um, wanting to be a tool to help share that, right? So when I worked in urban planning in New York City, we, I worked at an organization that does community-based design work. And um, this is an uh, example where I helped to do some community engagement at a, a homeless services organization around creating a public space for the people who are, um, were being temporarily housed in this um, homeless shelter and our on-house shelter. And, um, you know, I have the tools, the tools that I have is I can gather the information of what people want. I can find what's actually feasible for the pub, like this yard space that they had. I can think of the kinds of, you know, the kinds of equipment or um, spaces that you can create to, to meet the needs that people have just addressed that they like that have told me that they need it. Right. And I can figure out how much that's going to cost and create a budget and phase that out into a timeline and, and create a proposal that we're going to like submit for a grant. So those are all the tools that I have. But the key piece is like, I don't know what the people need. I don't, I, there's no way I can know what they need. And I can try to guess, I think this is what you need, but I'm never really going to know. Right. So the key, key piece of this entire thing, which often is super overlooked is that what has, what everything else that I just talked about has to be based on is what the people who are going to use the space need and desire. Right. And, um, and the listening and creating space and opportunity for people to share that information is the biggest key part of the entire community organizing process. And so that's really something that I've taken into filmmaking and to, um, and to Flash Foxy is like, we create these events, we create these courses, we create spaces. And then as a filmmaker, you know, I share, I create space for stories to be told, right. But they're not my stories. And ultimately I have the capability of um, filming something, of having it edited, of, of creating um, a media piece that will share someone's story, but ultimately that person's story as they see it is the most key part of that. And so um, kind of when we're talking about this, you know, root story or this watershed moment or this idea of belonging and what does that mean and how do we truly belong to ourselves and belong to the land and the spaces that we want to be in. Um, I mean, I think even before I realized that was something that I was searching for and yearning for, I think it was um, informing the way that I do all the work, um, all my work, which is really exciting. In the process of researching Shelma's body of work, I've been curious about the way that rock climbing has facilitated a healing of sorts particularly in her relationship with women. Whether it be through writing or speaking, Shelma has been vocal about her complicated relationship to women. In the REI documentary Short Within Reach, Shelma states, 
Once I was able to stop looking at other women through the lens of destructive stereotypes or as a competition, my relationships with women changed into something beautiful, supportive, and strong. Women climbing with women isn't the end-all solution to eradicating sexism, but it is creating an opportunity for us to see that negative social norms and pressures do exist, which make women feel in competition with one another to prove themselves strong enough, good enough, tough enough to hang with men in the outdoors. And so Shelma shares this complicated journey with us. Yeah, wow, you know, gosh, my relationship with women is so complicated. Um, and something that I'm still definitely working through, but, um, you know, I feel, and I don't, I don't know if this is belonging my age, but, um, I feel like when I was growing up, like it was very binary on like what you could be as a girl. It was like, you were either a tomboy and you had to turn your, and you were really athletic and you had to like turn your nose at like makeup or dresses and like be like why would you do any of those things I basically just want to be a boy you know (laughs) or you'd be on the other side and like you would love all these really super feminine tropes right like dolls or um you know dresses or makeup or doing your hair and that that you wouldn't want to get dirty and it was this hyper feminization of women and then this like hyper masculinization and like those are your only options there was no way to have intersecting identities between you couldn't you couldn't be like you couldn't have duality you know within your within your within your identity and um and for me like especially being a tomboy i think you know and i don't think like the boys that i was hanging out with did this on purpose i think a lot of what we all were doing and what we were expecting and what we were accepting were dynamics of like the social socialization that we all faced within like the current American uh, society at that time. But um, it's like, it's very much the thing where someone thinks they're complimenting you, but it's actually like kind of a veiled insult and they don't even realize that it's a veiled insult. So it's like, you know, you know, they'll be like, wow, you're like so strong for a girl. And you're just like, you know, they're trying to compliment you, but you're like, actually, this is like slightly insulting. But like another thing that would happen is like, oh, you're just not like the other girls. You're not too sensitive. You're not too emotional. Like, you know, you're cool. And these really seemingly innocuous words had such like a negative impact on me in multiple ways, because one, it like really made you feel like in competition with other women. Like there can only be one or two of us. I need to like be the coolest or the chillest or the least emotional so that like I'm accepted as like different so that I can be like part of this group that like other women they're from this statement are alluding or like not invited to because they're not this way. Um, And so having to really tamp down these ideas about myself, like, you know, these feminine parts about myself um, in order to feel like I could fit in. So there was that aspect. And the other aspect was like, it reinforced the idea that women naturally in general are too sensitive (laughs) too emotional, um, not cool, like, you know, like take everything um, and are really emotional about it. So it reinforced this idea that like, that's like women's natural state, which it isn't. Right. And so it like created a self-deprecating part of me and like also a part where I was really feeling like I had to push down these, uh, these more feminine or just not really feminine, just more emotional parts of me in order to like be in the space. And so um, I think my 30, like, you know, and I think I felt a lot of that kind of very effortlessly unconsciously growing up, like, and then in my twenties, I felt much more of that like competition really sharply, especially like in like snowboarding or skateboarding spaces. And then, um, you know, but there used to actually be this group this crew of like women who used to snowboard together, like at my local park. And I was always really jealous. I wish I could have a crew like that. And, uh, you know, in my thirties meeting, um, several of the female mentors that have really shaped a lot of who I am. And then meeting the women who I started rock climbing with that like precipitated the creation of flash Foxy. It was this real reckoning of my relationship with women. And it's still something that I'm continuing to, um, work on. And within your family structure, though, did you feel that there was that kind of duality as well in terms of what your parents expected from you? 
Yeah, you know, it's such a it's such an interesting question that you ask because on one end, like absolutely yes, like there was this idea that women should defer to like this male figure in their life, whether it's your father or your husband or anything like that. And there definitely was that um, you know, this pressure, like you should be wearing a dress, you shouldn't be running around, like you should be like not, you're always scraped up. There was kind of that idea, but then on the other side my mom was this like incredibly strong woman who like, you know, moved here and got a job. And like, you know, my parents used to own those dry cleaners for most of my childhood and, you know, was just this powerhouse figure in our family dynamic. My dad was also, but like, it was very equal between them. It certainly wasn't like someone deferring all the time to the other person. So I think like Korean culture and like even American culture to an extent was saying women should be this role. And so like by habit, that was what was being reinforced to me. But like, I wouldn't say that was necessarily what was done in practice. (laughs) And they just kind of let me run around and do whatever I wanted. So, you know, here I am. In 2016, Shilma founded Flash Foxy to empower women climbers and offer a virtual space to connect over climbing. The Flash Foxy Instagram account took on a life of its own, as Shilma found that women around the country had a deep desire for a women-centered rock climbing community. The 2016 inaugural Women's Climbing Festival was created out of this demand, and it was the first climbing festival that did not center cisgender men. The high demand for this type of space led Shelma to think deeply about the experiences of women in climbing gyms. And so, in the summer of that same year, Flash Foxy and Brooklyn Boulders published an online survey to assess whether gender-affected microaggressions, such as unwanted staring and advice, blatant physical and verbal harassment, and or discomfort in specific areas of the gym. The survey consisted of 28 questions and provided an opportunity for anecdotal feedback. Shelma received 1,500 responses with 29.8% male, 68.7% female, and 1.5% other. What Shelma found was overlooked gender discrimination and a sexist culture in climbing gyms. 64% of women who took the survey indicated feeling uncomfortable, insulted, or dismissed at some point in their training, as opposed to 29% of men. Scholarly research on the traumatic effects of sexist microaggressions have remained largely theoretical. However, recent scholarship on the subject is finding that prolonged exposure to sexism is associated with trauma symptoms. So, as I ask Shelma how she reclaims the outdoors to heal individual and or collective trauma, she tells us more about the survey and the anecdotal feedback she received. Um, The purpose of the gender in the gym study was to find out whether your gender affected your experience in the climbing gym. And like, shocker, it did. (laughs) Like, uh, you know, um, the majority of respondents said that they had either experienced or seen microaggressions as well as like aggressive sexism or discrimination occur in the gym. And whether they, you know, and whether they were women or men, the majority of everybody agreed that when they experienced it or saw it, it was a woman who was, ex- who, who was experiencing that microaggression or seeing like, you know, that uh, like overt discrimination. And, um, you know, it was actually really interesting. One actually little tidbit that was interesting was that, um, that women found like the weightlifting area to be the most uh, uncomfortable for them. And men actually found like the yoga room to be the most uncomfortable for them. But, um, you know, I think like the gender in the gym study was so interesting in a multitude of ways. I think it was like, I don't know why people like, you know, if sexism exists in society, I don't really know why it would like take a break. It'd be like, I'm going to go on a coffee break, like while you go into the climbing gym, like, don't worry, it'll be chilling here. Like, so like, to me, like, it felt really obvious that like, if we have these problems, in the workplace, in our personal dynamics, like in family, like in social circles, why wouldn't we see those same kind of problematic actions or, 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 um, characteristics in the climbing gym. But, um, there was like an actually incredibly negative backlash to this gender in the gym study. And I think 
some of it was frustrating. Um, you know, people being like, well, like, why, why do you think you have, you know, it's the same thing that's kind of happening with COVID right now where people are like, well, like who, what do you have to be able to say that you think, you know, that everything I just said is untrue. And someone's like, I'm a doctor. And I'm like, well, like you, like, I am a social scientist. I have a master's degree in urban planning, which included serious work around surveys and the, and the limits of surveys and the like obvious, um, you know, no survey is, is completely neutral. Everything has a bias because for example, this survey was um, self-selected, right? So only people who chose to take the survey were gonna take the survey. So maybe someone who doesn't even believe that gender could even affect it, they're not gonna take that survey. So maybe that, that um, opinion is not as well represented. So you do like, you do surveys and you identify that there are these things, you know, that are, um, biases or weaknesses about the survey and you know that's going to happen because there's no survey that doesn't have those and then based on like knowing that like here's still the data that we found right and um so there was like a lot of uh, gaslighting of my experience or my ability like you know my ability to put on a, a, a survey um my favorite actually <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we have time for this but my favorite is that you know at first I was so upset by all these really uh really intense comments that I was getting on um, social media and like on forums and things like that. But now I actually have this saved because at one point somebody wrote that, um, that I am actually going to be solely responsible for the end of the human race. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's really long, but it's basically like, you know, now it seems women are offended by a man interested in what he sees to be a pretty woman that might want the same thing. So congratulations to all the women who are ruining the chance for a non-lonely life. So we guess the human race is doomed to keep reproducing because it now seems that everything guys do now offends women. So nobody will talk to nobody. And that's the end of friendships and relationships and eventually the human race, which I actually kind of love. Like, I'm like, wow, you think I'm so powerful that I could, I single-handedly could like end the human race. That's like kind of flattering in its own, like, you know, kind of twisted way. Like, all right, I didn't really know I had that power, but may maybe I do. I was like, do we need more proof that there is like a problem here? Is just everything that's happening, you know? And I, and I think for me, it's like, um, if you want to know what I think, my values and my principles are out there. And I, have said those things, you know, through a lot of different channels. And if you're really invested, um, you can find what I think about it and why I think that and like my reasoning behind what I um, believe in. And you'll also see like an evolution of my thoughts because I'm also someone who's growing and evolving and changing and learning. Um, and, you know, I just, I think when you do this work, it's a constant navigation of, um, where are the best, best places for certain types of conversations to be happening? And like, is social media the best place for like you to be arguing with someone? Like, I don't agree with that. Um, to fight, you know, to fight with someone I don't know about something that like, I'm going to talk about until I'm blue in the face and it's not going to change your mind. Like, I'm not in, like, I don't have the time for that. I'm not interested in that. My emotional energy needs to be safe for like, potentially having these really hard conversations with people who are in my life. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I personally, you know, I think we all have to draw the lines of where we where we talk about these things, where we comment back, where we respond. And, um, you know, there is definitely a challenge in that of um, being called out by people who totally disagree with you, but also by people in your community. And like, how do you navigate those spaces and be really thoughtful and sincere and intentional about taking feedback and really um, taking the parts that are valid and good um, versus like the things that are kind of just people who want to, who are looking for a fight. As we continue, Shilma briefly addresses the exhausting nature of this work and how she handles it to ensure that her self-preservation remains intact. You can't deny things are happening because it's so in like it's so present in public spaces and social media, you know, with um, Occupy Wall Street, God, almost 10 years ago, um, you know, with Black Lives Matter, with 
you know, these movements that have come up and with social media and the ability to spread and disseminate information now and truths, multiple truths, not just the truths that are curated to us. Um, I think like, or the truths in air quotes that are curated to us. But, um, you know, I do think, I think it is this really exhaustive uh, dance for people in this kind of um, advocacy role of self-preservation, of um, wanting to create change and um, becoming totally exhausted, right? And I think for me, I try to find the spaces that I think like I can actually make meaningful change. And then also um, I try to be honest about like the spaces where I might have a little less trauma, a little bit less weariness about it. You know, I am a queer immigrant woman of color, but I'm cis and I am Asian. I'm not black or indigenous. And so, you know, the amount of, privilege that's awarded to me compared to certain other people like can be more and I want to take the moment to recognize those moments of privilege I'm also like don't speak with an accent you know and all these other things that can also like create barriers and and um stereotypes and assumptions about folks and their ability to communicate I don't really know why having an exact accent would affect your ability to use your brain and critical thinking but apparently people feel that for some strange reason. Um, but, you know, so like to me, I've been thinking about like, you know, I was talking with a friend who is uh, a non-binary queer person of color as well. And they're like, I'm just so tired. Like, I can't, I can't be in these spaces anymore. It's too exhausting for me. And, you know, I kind of said, you know, I feel okay right now. So I'm just going to keep trying to be the person who's in these spaces because I feel okay right now. But I'm sure at a moment I will feel tired and I will have to step back. But for now, maybe like I feel less exhausted. I have the opportunity. I have a little bit more of the emotional energy to speak up for people, not just myself, but for other folks in my community who have um, different um, uh, different oppressions being put on them. Like if I can be the person who can kind of stand up for them now with the hope that like people more privileged can meet than me who have more emotional capacity and energy can then also be there to stand up for us. Like, I think if it can slowly move up that way, maybe, maybe the people at the incredible, like at the very top, you know, will take responsibility for engaging and not having to just sit back and learn or, or wait for us. It's very aspirational though. You look very convinced by my, by my, by my thought process. You're like, yeah, that's totally going to happen. That's not what your face is saying. Check back in a couple of years. (laughs) I mean, it's hard. It's hard because um, the progress is slow. Sometimes you have to look at it at a five-year look back. You know, I think about it with um, recovery. You know, I I donated a kidney last summer. That was like the big thing I did in 2020 is I donated a kidney. And like, I remember just feeling like I'm not getting better. I'm not getting better. I still feel bad. Um, like, I'm just, you know, like, oh, like I still feel tired. I still can't do anything. I still can't run. And like, but it's nice having to like really step back, you know, on the day to day, on the hour to hour, I couldn't see that progress, but I was like, Oh, three weeks ago, I could only walk three blocks. And now I can walk like for 30 minutes. We can go like a half mile or we even went on like a three quarters of a mile walk today. Like, so, Oh yeah. Remember when you only watched two blocks and you had to turn around because you were too tired. Like, so I needed that like really like kind of stepped back perspective around that. And, um, I think sometimes I need that when it comes to this work too. Like when I think about like, how have we not gone farther? How have we not done more yet? Why are we still here? That can feel really frustrating. But when I do look at like five years ago or seven years ago, um, things are changing. They're just not changing as fast as I think they should, but like the needle is moving. And like, I want to, I want to take that as a small win. You get, you know, cause you have to take the wins where you can. As an organization, Flash Foxy has been known as a woman's space within the rock climbing community. However, over the summer, the Flash Foxy team publicly announced an update that was made to the organization's mission and vision. The Flash Foxy team writes, quote, 
The climbing community is not static and Flash Foxy has adapted over the years to meet the needs of its membership as they grow, change, and continue to self-actualize. Presently, Flash Foxy stands with the women and genderqueer community, including but not limited to gender non-conforming folks who need a space to pursue their love of the sport without having to deal with the historic barriers to access, end quote. As Shilma continues to expand on the subject, she shares that the pandemic gave the Flash Foxy team the time and space needed to reflect on what it meant to be a woman's space and if there was a space in that for genderqueer people. You know, the pandemic was interesting in a lot of ways. Um, we obviously had to stop doing events. We had to put a brand new program, our education program on hold immediately after we launched it. And we kind of had to lay low for about 18 months because the core of what we were doing just couldn't really happen. Um, and you know, but it, what was really good is it gave us a lot of time to think and be really intentional about how we're going to be moving forward as an organization. And one of the things that we had been kind of grappling with, but maybe hadn't given it as much attention as we needed to like really come to a stance was around like, what does it mean to be a woman's space? And is there space in that for um, gender queer folks? And, you know, this summer we announced publicly um, that we are expanding our mission and vision um, you know, historically, our mission and vision has been to provide resources and create spaces for women, but we are, you know, explicitly expanding that to be for gender queer folks as well. And, you know, I do feel like expanding is actually maybe a little bit of a misnomer because it's really, it was really updating our mission and vision to reflect who already existed in our community. And, you know, so we had a lot of uh, non-binary, transmasculine, you know, uh, folks in our community who maybe came to our community already not identifying as women, but feeling that this was the safest space for them, um, the space they still, even while feeling slightly excluded, still felt the most included in this space versus any other space. Or we had folks who had been on their own really amazing personal journey of like self-identity and um, maybe no longer identified as a woman anymore. And, you know, some of these people are people who've been teaching clinics for us for years or head volunteers for our events, um, you know, key people in our, you know, core people in our community who either one felt like they had to leave a part of themselves at home, kind of, which I'm obviously really familiar with to be in these spaces with us, or two, were coming to me and asking like, can I still be in this space? Am I still allowed to be here? Like, is this a space for me? Um, and, you know, I think originally we kind of our first original way of like working through this was like saying, hey, this is like a woman's space, a women's center space. But like um, gender queer people are are invited, are welcome to be here. And um, if you I don't know if you saw, I moderated a panel last summer called Being Welcomed is Not Enough. And it came from a quote that I had seen about how there is a difference between all are welcome and the space was created with you in mind right and that really stuck with me and it was something that I, like you know i continue to think about as i thought about this organization and our mission and like you know we can say you're welcome you're welcome you're welcome here but unless we're really explicitly creating the space with you in mind we're not really creating true inclusivity right and so wanting to be true to that wanting to be um, committed to true inclusivity and equity you know i just felt that it didn't feel fair to genderqueer folks to say, you're welcome here, but actually like we're not, it's called the women's climbing festival. It's a women's space. Um, you have to leave a part of yourself somewhere. Um, and so making this really explicit um, shift uh, felt really right for us. And I think it is actually where some of the movement of affinity, like I think this is part of where the direction of like, equity and inclusivity in the outdoors is headed anyways, where, um, you know, we've been able to create these really amazing, like very tight affinity spaces, but, um, you know, in our space, in our, you know, in our flash foxy space now, we're going to have people and they're, you know, of differing affinity identities, and that is going to cause some tension, but truly there's always been that because, of intersectional feminism and intersectional identities anyways. So I think like, yes, the affinity specific space is important for affirmation, for 
uh, finding community, finding strength, finding, you know, affirming of your ability and your, your belonging, all of these things. But I do think like we are going to start, I do think to continue to grow and to create like collaboration for all, we do need to start creating spaces that kind of mix a little bit of that. So we do create a little bit of tension maybe, but like tension for growth, for understanding, for more awareness and um, empathy for, for different oppressions and different challenges. And that's really exciting to me. As a person who is constantly growing and evolving, Shelma is intentional in every aspect of how she leads the work of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the outdoors. Along with the updates made to the organization's mission and vision, the Flash Foxy team also renamed the Women's Climbing Festival to the Flash Foxy Climbing Festival as a way of being inclusive of genderqueer individuals in the Flash Foxy climbing community. As we come to a close, Shilma addresses the significance of the words diversity, inclusion, and belonging, while also acknowledging some of her blind spots. I think we we have expectations for words to do a lot of work for us, and that is like in of itself already kind of a challenge. You know, I think for me, a lot of what I've been grappling with more, like not me personally, but when I work within this industry, is trying to help explain the difference between diversity and inclusivity. Like, and I think uh, belonging kind of is, is in there as well. So, I mean, the example I always kind of give is like, all right, like you have this camping campaign and now you've like put some people of color and some queer folks in there. And now they're just wearing the clothes everybody else is wearing around the campfire, doing this camp thing that you think is like how people camp. Um, now there is a diverse field in there, but is it really inclusive? Is it really a feeling of belonging? Because that's not how I camp. That's not how my family camped. That's not how necessarily a lot of people camp. So like true feelings of belonging, you know, you know, like inclusivity and belonging are really tough. I think, you know, um, yeah, I mean, inclusive, will we ever be completely inclusive to everybody? Like, absolutely not. Is that something to aspire towards? Like, absolutely. You know, and I think like, one of the most challenging things for me around the evolution of Flash Foxy has been like getting ourselves up to speed on all the differing identities and differing challenges and oppressions that people feel to hopefully mitigate our spaces, reinforcing any of those. And I think one really clear example, you know, you brought up the word accessibility. I think accessibility as it relates to um, uh, disabled climbers, like, you know, climbers with disabilities, like, was like this huge blind spot for me as somebody who is able-bodied, who doesn't necessarily climb with a lot of folks um, who aren't able-bodied. And so um, it was this, were we excluding people and, you know, even more so than we are now? Like, absolutely. You know, did we have like wheelchair accessible bathrooms always like available? Did we even at least just have information about what accessibility looked like? Like, okay, like these things are happening on up in a parking lot with pavement. So like, this is what the environment looks like. Yes, some of these clinics will be happening on really soft trails with sand. So like that would be that are going at an incline. So they would be challenging. So, you know, I think, um, having gender neutral bathrooms like there are so many things around um the language that we were using so there are all these things that like i as one person or you know our like you know our team as just a handful of people like that we were missing and we were excluding people unbeknownst to us or like un unintentionally like absolutely and i think that has been one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences is like trying to get myself and my team up to speed as quickly as possible to try to be um, inclusive in the ways that we want to be. And, um, you know, I do think I have to use the word aspirationally because we certainly aren't executing exactly the way that we would want to be. It's certainly a lot of aspirational and like, I, you know, and growing so much, being challenged so much, being questioned, being um, called out and um, hoping to use those as opportunities to grow um, while also being confident and trusting yourself, and that part's really difficult.
Shoma and I launch into the fun five, and she leaves us with words of wisdom to carry us through into 2022 and beyond. What are your favorite three things in nature and what does it tell us about you? I thought about like, what are the three favorite things or what are the three favorite ways that I probably experience nature? I think it's a couple of those things. I think my one, like my favorite thing about nature is that um, it makes it really clear that this isn't a human centric world. We try to make it a really human centric world. We think like we are the end all be all of it. But when you're out in nature, when you see things that are millions of years old or you know, our animal kin who've been around since the Pleistocene era or something like that. You're just like, this is just, we've been around for not that long, like in the comparative grand story of the world. And when you're out in nature, it becomes really obvious. And I, and I like that reminder to me and kind of to us in general that um, we can create these human focused spaces as much as we want, but in the end, like nature is not a human-centric place. And I think we need that reminder. <laughs> um, kind of the second thing is, um, you know, one of the things that drew me to climbing, it was like, it was one of the first ways that I felt that I was a part of the landscape instead of an observer of the landscape. I had grown up going camping and kind of going to a lot of national parks and, you know, pulling off at the scenic viewpoint and looking out at something and being like, wow, that's so pretty over there. I'm not a part of it. I'm here looking at it. And I'm an observer of nature and landscape. And the first time I was, you know, 500 feet up on a wall on the side of a wall in the middle of nowhere, it was the first time I really felt I was a part of what was happening here. I was really engaged in that. And, um, and I think uh, that was incredibly powerful for me. And that's like one of the, one of the big things that drew me to climbing. And uh and that was one of the things that drew me to climbing. And I would say kind of the last thing is a kind of in concert with that. Um, you know, I've recently taken up hunting and um, it is this really complicated dynamic and relationship with nature, with wildlife, which I've never really been so, you know, I haven't had a lot of experience with that. I've had much more experience with landscape and places and much more uh, less with other animal kin with like wildlife. So finding my dynamic as um, a part of that, as somebody who is gathering food for myself and for my friends and family and like being a part of that, like dynamic of life and death as it happens very regularly in nature um, has been really powerful for me. I would say those are kind of the three biggest things that I take from it right now. Oh, that's amazing. Which of your ancestors would you most like to meet? I thought about this and I think probably who, well, first part ancestors I have met, but didn't really get to know would be like my, my grandparents on my dad's side. Um, they fled North Korea, you know, with four children, like four children, a baby and pregnant, like my, my grandmother's pregnant. They fled North Korea, um, kind of leaving by, behind a lot of their family during the Korean War and fled to the southern tip of the Korean Peninsula, Busan, which is where both my parents were born during the war. And then they eventually moved back up to Seoul. And that's where both my parents grew up. But, um, you know, and my grandparents also were born and spent a lot of time during the Japanese occupation of Korea, which I don't know if a lot of people like are aware of that history. But Korea was colonized and under Japanese occupation for uh, many decades before the end of World War II. And during that time, we're not allowed to take on Korean names. We're not allowed to speak the Korean language. There was like a lot of trauma around that. And, um, you know, I think in, uh, in an attempt in Korea to create cohesiveness and community, there was like a lot of nationalism that was put into place and not a lot of talk about the kind of maybe intergenerational trauma that exists from that period of time. And so I would love to hear that kind of aspect from my grandparents. And then if we're going to, and then the opposite side is like way, 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 way back. You know, a lot of Korean culture is based on these tenets of Korean Confucianism that had a lot of talk about order and like um, hierarchies and things like that, which I think of like some of it has been beneficial, but like, I think it's created some of these like uh, problematic parts of Korean culture. And, you know, before that there was this deep history of like village Korean shamanism 
that um, I don't know much about, and it's really hard to find access to unless you're, I think, in Korea, like in an academic space. So kind of like would love to meet my ancestors who would like be able to share more about that part of like our history and our culture with me. That's awesome. So how would you like to spend your elder years? You know, just doing whatever I want. I can't wait until I'm old enough that like people, like I could just do whatever I want and people have to deal with it because I'm old and they just know I'm not going to change. I think that's going to be really fantastic, <laughs> but like a more like, so yes, that, but also, you know, I'd love to be able to continue to do what I do. I think like what I've noticed, you know, um, my dad passed away this year and it was really awful and he was quite young. He was 68 and, you know, he had a lot of health issues, you know, and some of that is, you know, personal choices. And some of that is, uh, the diet and exercise he was able to have when we first moved here because of like our income situation, financial situation, things like that. But, um, I think what I've realized more than ever is, you know, fitness wise, like if you look at 22 year olds, the least fit person and the most fit person, there isn't really that much of a gap between there really, if you think about it. Right. But when you think of like the most fit, like 70 year old and the least fit 70 year old, like that gap is massive. Like when you're out in the mountains, like there are people who are 70 who are out there just like kicking my butt, like on the trails or like putting in the skin track, you know, when you're touring in the backcountry in the winter and, um, that ability to be health, like that fitness, that healthiness that allows you to experience things to still experience things at that, like, um, at that age, like I definitely aspire to that. Same here. <laughs> and I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. If you could give all human beings one virtue, what would you choose? Empathy. <laughs> uh, the ability to understand that people's experiences are not the same as yours and truly empathize with that. I think that would really change. That would really be such a impetus for us to be able to um, dismantle systemic oppression. That one was like pretty, pretty, pretty immediate, <laughs> aspirational. Oh. What space and place most dramatically influenced your life? Um, you know, I thought about it and maybe it's good that it still is influencing my life, but um, it, I would say it's the two places that I split my time between right now. It's the Eastern Sierra in California where, you know, I kind of moved right after college um, and, and I've kind of gone back there repeatedly and spent a lot of my time there now. And New York City, I think like the Eastern Sierra really cemented my connection with the land, with the outdoors. It's a really powerful place. You can feel the power of this place. Um, that there's a lot of really um, strong energy there. And it's really been this place that has like given me the ability to connect with myself as I relate to nature. Um, and then New York City, which is kind of the place that has given me the ability to really meet all different types of people of all different um, moments of their life and in their growth. And, you know, has given me growth around empathy and understanding and also finding ways to discover myself and where, who I am and really to dismantle systemic societal inputs that I have like unconsciously held. Um, I don't think anywhere has been more powerful and more um, influential to me than being here in the city. So um, the two places I hold most near and dear to my heart, are um, the places that have definitely most dramatically influenced me. Where can our listeners find you and how can they be of service to you in advancing your work in the outdoors? You can find me on Instagram. Shellmatic is my personal Instagram. Hey, Flash Foxy is the Flash Foxy Instagram. Um, you can find us on our websites. I'm currently building out my personal website, but the Flash Foxy website, if you, you know, you can see, hopefully see our work and shared with, uh, within different channels within the outdoors. I think of being service to me, I think just being service to our movement, um, to what we're working toward. I would say like, you know, if you're someone with a lot of privilege, the best way you can be of service is to learn and grow and work on continuing to expand your understanding and then like to be that champion that you and I were talking about to be the voice that teaches so that like that kind of burden isn't less only on the people who are oppressed and then yeah you can support our work um, by sharing our events coming to our 
our programming, you know, one of the biggest things which we didn't have a chance to talk about on this podcast is, you know, we've expanded into our education program, which is the idea that we can provide national standardized technical learning around climbing to any, like it's open to anybody, but every course will be taught by a gender, queer, or uh, woman instructor. And, you know, it'll all be by people who are certified by the American Mountain Guide Association, teaching best practices um, as it aligns with the AMGA. So, you know, that's a new program. We're definitely trying to get the word out about that. If you know people who um, want to become safer in the mountains and are looking for a space that feels safe, again, that feels that they can feel welcomed in, that they can bring their full selves. You know, that's the kind of space that we're aspiring to create. So yeah, I would say those are kind of the best ways to reach us right now and support us. Awesome. And those classes are, can be found through the Flashboxy website. Yeah, through our website. Okay, so great. I'll link that in the notes section. And what parting words would you like to share with our listeners to support them in learning, unlearning, and or relearning how to center healing in their lives? I would say just, you know, to give yourself and the folks around you the space to grow. You know, I think, you know, I think about where somebody has like, you know, like where they've dug up some racist comment that someone said 25 years ago. And yes, I think they shouldn't have said that. Does that like, should that be a current reflection of who they are right now? Like, it depends, like, what are their current actions that define and show who they are right now? I think about how much unlearning that I've had to do. And the things that I thought were okay to say, or that I had been like taught through society to like assume or, or think about and how much growth that I've had and how lucky I am to have that space to grow. And, you know, I just think if we want people, we can't change the fact that people have been conditioned the way that they are, like if that's already what they've experienced. And if we are demanding people change, I want to make sure that we're giving ourselves and the other folks um, that space to change and grow and be different. I love that. As we come to a close, I was thinking a lot about the very last section um, as we're closing out duality. And you were recalling how a lot of the trip had allowed you to really think about how you thought about rock climbing in the context of American history. And that it was very dominated by white folks, but that being in Korea, it gave you an entirely different perspective. And you said, what I associate with climbing doesn't have to be defined by that narrative and that by seeing, by being a climber in our community and by sharing my story on my own terms, I'm beginning to do that. I just, I want to thank you. I respect the hell out of you because I think that everything you do is on your own terms. As I reflect on, on your trajectory, you've changed a lot of narratives about not just for yourself, right? But for so many others. And I think that you, in many ways, leading by example, empower others to change that narrative for themselves. And so thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for always willing to engage in those uncomfortable conversations and, you know, empowering others to do so as well. Thank you so much for the kind words. I mean... I'm totally blown away by those. And thank you so much for preparing so much for this podcast interview. I think I mentioned it when we first talked, like, I think like you having taken the time to really um, research about what I've, what I've been saying in the past, like we've been able to have like a really meaningful and exciting conversation that isn't the same questions, you know, that I often get asked. So it's like, really, um, I felt like a lot of what we talked about today were things that I maybe haven't had an opportunity to talk about before. So thank you for creating the space um, for us to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. You're too kind. Thank you so much, Shelma. Shelma's story is one of constant growth and evolution. As she candidly shared her blind spots, especially as it pertained to individuals in the disability and genderqueer climbing community, she stated, quote, growing so much, being challenged so much, being questioned, being called out. I'm hoping to use those as opportunities to grow while also being confident and trusting myself. And that part is difficult. As I played back the conversation, the word growth was peppered throughout. Even as Shelma closed out the space, she left us with these words of wisdom. Give yourself and others the space to grow. This requires that we give ourselves and each other the grace to forgive our mistakes our momentary lapses of judgment, and or hurtful behaviors that may have caused harm to human and non-human kin alike. I know, easier said than done. Oftentimes, this is going to mean having uncomfortable conversations, questioning yourself, and holding yourself accountable in the same way that Shelma does. It means accepting that we are not perfect 
and knowing when to take a step back and reflect in order to take action that is healing and life-affirming for ourselves and our communities. Shelma is constantly doing this through her filmmaking, her writing, the way she conducts business to ensure she is in partnership with local tribal councils and small businesses, as well as providing scholarships to those who have been historically excluded from outdoor spaces. So give yourself the space to ask questions, to identify your blind spots, to keep learning, to keep pushing through the growing pains. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for sticking with us through the entire episode. In the show notes, you will find Shelma's social media handles, articles she has written, her documentary film shorts, information on Korean camping culture, and resources to read up on intersectional feminism. To remain connected, please follow us on Instagram at underscore yourhealingnature or email me at info at yourhealingnature.com. Lastly, I'd love for this podcast to be as collaborative as possible. Therefore, BIPOC community, if there's a topic, theme, or guest you'd love to hear from as it relates to healing trauma in the outdoors and or rethinking the outdoors, please let me know. Mil gracias. Until next time, keep walking in sunshine.